according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are once again in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Last week we introduced Hebrews chapter 2 and got our first look at verses 1 through 4. And uh, I'm going to recover a lot of the material that we talked about last week to try to clarify and resolve some confusion. Because I think if we fail to do that, then we miss the entire point. And I don't want to do that. This, uh, these four verses are vital in a lot of ways uh, for the remainder of chapter 2, for the remainder of the book. And just as chapter 1 started off with a four-verse uh, powerful passage there in the prologue of the book, there were four verses that spoke to some amazing things in, in depth and power. And then the remainder of the chapter fleshed out the details through Old Testament quotations. Uh, in a very similar way, chapter 2 contains four verses uh, as a unit that plunge into some very deep things. And then what follows in verses 5 and following, down through verse 18, is many Old Testament quotations and illustrations and explanations. And so I want to make sure we're clear on this uh, before we proceed. And also it struck me too that there's a lot of angelology that I was taking for granted. And, uh, and then somebody pointed out that they had never heard this before, they weren't a part of the angelology series before. Uh, because the angelology we taught in the Second Corinthians hour, which is 9.30 or Wednesday night. And so uh, the 11 o'clock hour didn't get a lot of that angelology material that I was taking for granted last week. And so I'm going to remedy that here this morning. All right? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention. In preparation for the study of the Word of God, let's bow for a word of prayer and ask Him to make this happen. We want to pay much closer attention. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth and so thankful, Father, for your grace. Your grace that saves us, your grace that indwells us, your grace that provides all things necessary for life and godliness. We thank you for God the Holy Spirit that every born-again believer in this dispensation receives the permanent indwelling of the Spirit of truth. And Father, we thank you that in that teaching ministry, the things, even the deep things of God are made available for any believer. And so Father, we do pray that you would take some deep things this morning and that you would speak very plainly, speak very simply, communicate in such a way that each one of your children is blessed and edified. Might we appreciate our so great salvation and all the more as we pay closer attention. So Father, uh, bless our study this morning. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we begin chapter 2, we start with a for this reason. And the for this reason encompasses the totality of chapter 1 and particularly the totality of verses 5 through 14 that's spelling out that superiority of Christ is the for this reason. And we don't want, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we want to be diligent students of the Word of God and many reasons that aren't stated here. But the one that's stated here is the content from chapter 1. All right? <clears throat> and so uh, Jesus is coming again. There is a kingdom that cannot be shaken and it's on the way. 
He's coming again with a righteous scepter and an eternal kingdom. And that eternal kingdom is going to continue beyond this present heaven and earth. It will start on this earth. He will reign for a thousand years on this earth. But then heaven and earth are going to pass away. And a new heavens and a new earth are going to be created. And his kingdom will continue in the new heavens and on the new earth. And that's what we're looking forward to. Humanity is party to these blessings as we will inherit the salvation of Jesus Christ and we will see the angelic realm diminished. The angelic realm will be diminished to our servitude. They are designed to be servants for all eternity. Presently, they are beings of power and great glory, but that will be diminished because you and I are presently creatures of humility. We are dust creatures of, uh, of, of great inferiority, and yet we have a destiny that is exalted. And so this is the impact of chapter 1 and chapter 2. <clears throat> I, w- I remind you <clears throat> that this prologue in verses 1 through 4 ended <clears throat> Excuse me, when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of, on high, having become as much better than the angels. That's the point, all right? There were a lot of other things that could be said, but they weren't said there in that verse. Much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And the rest of chapter 1 is detailing that no angel was invited to sit at his right hand. No uh, No angel is told, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. No angel is told, go forth, and uh, stretch forth your, your righteous scepter from Zion. It's only Jesus Christ that has these promises. It's God the Son who's given these promises. And so the God-man is being exalted in a way that no angel ever would and no angel ever could. That's uh, the impact here on uh, chapter 1. And so to which of the angels? And let all the angels worship. And of the angels he makes them winds and a flame of fire. There's a diminishing of their glory. Uh, Whereas your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. So there's a a lot of doctrine in chapter 1 that centers on the exaltation of Christ and the diminishment of angels. Um, In verse 14, are they not all, this is chapter 1, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Every angel is destined to be a servant for all eternity. And uh, we have the understanding of it there. By the way, I don't often put this up. I need to put more of this up, so let me do that now. Um, We have a timetable in the back of our EBC reader on the plan of God, and that timetable folds out, and you can look at it. We have a, a large copy of it in the hallway back here past the nursery. And you can, uh, you can read the details there. But I think all too often when we look at this table, we center here on the present world. We center on where we are, all right? And so uh, like when you walk into a mall, a little red dot says you are here, okay? Do they still have malls? I don't know, since, since, uh, as far as, since Amazon was invented, I don't think I've been to a mall. But that's... So here we are in the church, okay? And the church age broken down into the age of the apostles and the post-apostolic age of the local church. We, this is where we are, all right? And yet, this is simply a parenthesis. This is a break. God has a plan for Israel, and Israel 
was the steward before the church was the steward. God had a stewardship, has always been working through stewardships, and Israel was God's steward from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from their call. And so Israel operated as the steward of God, and they ministered the truth of the Word of God to the Gentile nations. And so they operated in an age of promise, in an age of law, in an age of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that, uh, that they had a stewardship. And guess what? They're not done. God has an eternal purpose for Israel and their stewardship is not yet finished. When the church is gone they will have an age of tribulation and they will have a millennial kingdom. The age of the millennial reign. And all of that is on this earth. But we're not looking for this earth. According to His promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because at the end of the millennium we have a world to come. And we have a new stewardship, the stewardship of Christ. And that's what we're looking forward to, all right? And what we want to learn here in Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 is that before Israel was the steward, of course, before the call of Abraham, there was the Gentile stewardship, or what I call the dispensation of humanity, the dispensation of man, in which there was the age of innocence, the age of conscience, and the age of human government, all right? And some of this is basic stuff. It goes back. Schofield invented some of these terms. Um, no one has really liked the age of human government, but no one has improved upon it for a better label, as it were, with the Babel dispersions and the, the purpose of God in the nations. Uh, and so, but innocence, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, conscience after they fell, and then human government after the flood with the, uh, with the establishment of the nations. Those were the ages of the Gentile stewardship before God called out Abraham and set apart a covenant earthly nation. All right? And so none of that should be a newsflash either. If you've been under any kind of dispensational Bible teaching, this should be familiar. What is not often taught, though, is that there was a stewardship before Adam. There was a stewardship before humanity. That there was an angelic realm on this earth before this earth was restored to Adamic habitability. And so the world that was. In fact, First Peter talks about the world that was, or Second Peter, the world that now is and the world to come. Okay? And I find that as a useful threefold division. The world that was, the present world, and the world to come. And we have that phrase coming up here in Hebrews 2.5. When it says, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Alright? And that's powerful right there. The author tells us what he's talking about. And so there's a lot of commentaries that don't know what they're talking about because they don't pay attention to what Hebrews says he's talking about. He's talking about not subjecting to angels the world to come concerning which we speak. Okay? And yet the world which was, the world before Adam, is the world in which angels were placed. There were celestial angels that occupied the heavenly places and then there were terrestrial angels that were placed upon the earth. And that's where the rebellion took place. That's where Satan launched his revolt. And in the warfare that took place it destroyed the world that then was. It left the world tohu wabohu. And so I kind of went through this last week in passing and there were a lot of, a lot of faces that were scrunched up and, and, and concerned. <laughs> All right, So uh, I broke my own rule because I don't normally look at faces when I'm preaching. <laughs> I normally preach to the clock or the thermostat or the, the amen sign on the wall back there or something like that. Um, 
But last week, I broke my own rule. I started looking at faces because I was seeing dozens of, of uh, you know, frowned uh, foreheads and squinty eyes and, and concern over, have we ever heard this before? All right, so let me just share a couple of other items and then we'll return to what we've, what we've seen. Um, because we have some imperatives here to, to pay close attention and do not drift. And that's what we're commanded to do. Pay close attention and do not drift. And, uh, but the contrast is, what happened to the angels when they didn't pay attention or when they drifted? What happens when angels fell? What happens when they spoke a word of defiance and, be- and one-third of the angels became fallen angels? What was the consequence there? And what was the, uh, the, the nature of that fall? Do we understand it? Does the scripture, do the scriptures describe it? All right. And so, if I may, uh, let me just take one more short side trip before we, before we uh, get back to our slideshow. You know, because there's so much. When we get to Genesis, there's so much. Even before we get to Genesis, you know, when we go to Colossians 1 and we have creation that's there, it talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. Remember that? We studied this in Hebrews 1. The firstborn of all creation. How by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. We have information here that's not in Genesis. We have information here that's not detailed in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. We have angels, the heavenly host. The, the invisible realm, the thrones, the dominions, the rulers, the authorities, those are all angelic references. And uh, none of those are mentioned in Genesis. We have to understand, well, when were they created? Right? We can go to Psalm 33. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. The heavens and the heavenly host. But Genesis doesn't mention the heavenly host. Genesis just says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. All right? Does that mean Genesis was lying? Not at all. It means that Genesis was communicating what Genesis was intended to communicate in the establishment of the earth for Adam's habitation. And we go elsewhere for the angelic information. And I want to make sure we're clear on this. Because this is what lets Scripture agree with Scripture. We're not saying that Psalm 33 is right and Genesis is wrong. We're not saying that Colossians 1 is right and that Genesis is wrong. Every passage is right. Every passage is true because God's not a liar. And so we harmonize every passage so that every passage is uplifted appropriately and held as valid and true for its own sake. And then we harmonize it with every other passage that's equally as true for its own sake. So we have heavens and the heavenly host. Easy to spot. Okay? And then it shouldn't shock us, right? Because didn't he do the same thing in the day-by-day account when he separates the waters from the land and now that he has oceans then he puts fish in the oceans? And when he has dry land now he puts animals on the dry land? It, it makes sense. You know, when there's an atmosphere, an expanse, then there's a sky, so he creates birds that can fly in the sky. Alright? God's not dumb. He creates the realm And then he puts the creatures there that inhabit that realm. And so it's normal, it's natural to think, well, gee, when he created the heavens, 
Don't you think that would have been a good time to then populate the heavens with a heavenly host? I think it would be a great time to populate the heavens with a heavenly host. And Psalm 33, 6 says that's what he did. He created the heavens and all their host. And so uh, just because we don't read about it in Genesis then, uh, we're okay. So when I go to Genesis 3, okay, for the, I'm going to get back to, relax, we're going to get there. Uh, but on the way back to chapter 1, I'm going to spotlight some things here in chapter 3. Because, I mean, if all you're reading is Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, you've got some questions. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, who's this guy? Where'd he come from? He's already a fallen creature. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's tempting Adam and Eve into their sin. He's a wicked thing. And um, he's not the most crafty of all the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. He was more crafty than all the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. You understand the difference? See, if I talk about the, uh, the, 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 the prettiest woman of Austin Bible Church, well, clearly. I'd be talking about my wife. Okay, I'd be talking about Sharon. And, and when I say she is the prettiest of all women of Austin Bible Church, well, then that includes her as a part of that group, right? But if then I talk about a woman that comes in who is prettier this is a bad example. I should never have gone here. <laughs> All right, so let me, let me talk about the tallest man of Austin Bible Church. Okay. <laughs> we can all identify with the tallest man of Austin Bible Church. And then somebody comes in and we say he is taller than any man of Austin Bible Church. So we know that he's an outsider, he's somebody that's come in that's not included in that set. And we have that language here. The serpent is not a beast of the field. The serpent is not a zoological snake that was not a part of the six-day creation account, was not named by Adam when Adam named all the creatures. All right, This is not a zoological being. This is an angelic being. More crafty than any beast of the field and he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And so we have questions in Genesis. Well, where'd this guy come from? Why is he a fallen creature? Why do we have sinners already when Adam and Eve aren't sinners yet? How do we have a sinner before Adam's a sinner? Okay. And it's interesting when God comes down and he starts uh, giving the interrogation here, he asks, uh, you know, who told you that you were naked? And to the, the man said it was the woman and the woman said it was the snake. And and uh, it's interesting, when he speaks to the woman, you know, to Adam he says, what is this you've done? To the serpent he says, or to the woman he says, but there's no word like that to the, to the serpent at all. To the serpent it's just, here's your curse. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Okay? He doesn't ask, why have you done this? Doesn't say anything preparatory. It's just condemnation to the serpent that becomes significant, all right? Then they get kicked out of the garden, and then a cherub gets posted. In verse 24, he drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And if all you're doing is reading Genesis, you've read three chapters of the Bible now, and you've got to stop and say, what's a cherubim? 
Where did that come from? It's the first time it's ever shows up. Not in chapter 1, not in chapter 2. Well, what's a cherubim? Where'd they come from? Where'd they get created? What's a sword? <laughs> okay, you know, if all we have is Adam and Eve, where'd all this other stuff come from? And so that helps us then again to identify the fact that there was a whole angelic history prior to the creation of Adam. And it must be prior to because uh, Satan's a fallen being as he's introduced there in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, So that world that was, that's significant for us. So coming back then to Genesis, we have in the beginning God created the heavens and the heavenly host and the earth, right? In fact, I even prepared something where I can draw pictures. How about that? In the beginning, God created the heavens. And just go ahead and and write on your your Bibles right here. (laughs) And the heavenly hosts. Psalm 33, 6. Okay? Or other passages, a bunch of places you could turn to. Colossians 1, visible and invisible. Okay? The point being is that there is a gap inside of verse 1. There'll be people that tell you, oh, no, 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 no gaps, no gaps, no gaps. Clearly, there's a gap, and Scripture demands it. Because the heavens and the heavenly hosts. By the way, the earth was the last thing to come around. You go to Job 38, what do you see? Join me in Job 38. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. If you get to Psalms, you've gone too far. In Job 38, what are you looking at? Angels, the heavenly host, but no earth yet. And then God creates the earth. And the angels are rejoicing. And they're singing because God created the earth. This is Job 38, 7. And in his rebuke of Job, you know, were you there when I did this? Were you there? Did you do this? And he says, where, in verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Now, God had an audience for that, just Job wasn't in the crowd. His audience was angelic. Who set its measurements, since you know? Who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone or its capstone? Say, were you there when I did all this? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Those are angels. God had an audience when he created the earth. He gathered the angels around to show them the earth. And and they got to watch him create. Something which, by the way, they can't do. (laughs) Even though some of them are called Beneha Elohim, they're called sons of God. Or some of them are called Elohim, they're called gods. But they can't create as God has created They can watch and they can sing. And so in the beginning God created the heavens and the heavenly host, trained some of them as singers, I think morning stars as a choir. They they got together to sing and he brought them around to an empty spot and said, okay, now watch this. Because the earth had not yet been made. It's like the woman had not yet been made when Adam was naming all those animals and he's looking around and says, all right, sheep and goats and dogs and cats and elephants and whatever and I don't have a helpmate. There's no, there's no helpmate corresponding to me. So God then took the rib out and here's the woman. I think it's the same thing. Planet Earth was missing and the angels are brought to witness what's missing. And God created the beauty of planet Earth and the angels were amazed. 
All right. And by the way, Isaiah 45 says, when he created the earth, it was not tohu wabohu. It was not a waste place. It was created to be inhabited because the angels rejoiced. So something else happens here. There's another gap here in between verse 1 and verse 2. Because once we get to verse 2, the earth was formless and void. Well, how'd that happen? Genesis doesn't tell us. But we can go to Jeremiah 4 and we can see how. Jeremiah 4 verse 23 talks about throwing down the cities and Carmel being a waste place and the, the destruction of the old earth. Tohu wabohu. And part of Satan's rebellion. And so gap within verse 1 and another gap between verse 1 and verse 2. All right? Are we clear on this? I want to make sure. And if there's any further questions, Wednesday night we have a question and answer time. Because this used to be taught very frequently among dispensational evangelical Bible students. And probably since the early 90s or mid-90s, about going back to my own ordination, about 94, it started to fall into less and less acceptance. And now there are good men that actually teach against it. And that breaks my heart. Okay? And so uh, they might even be amused if you still hold to gap theory. Just smile and say, well, I don't call it a theory. I call it the reconciliation of Scripture. Okay? How do you reconcile Scripture? Where do you place the fall of angels? Where do you place the fall of Satan? Where do you place the destruction of the angelic earth? How do you reconcile Job 38 with Isaiah 45 with Jeremiah 4? How do you reconcile these things? Where do you place the fall of Satan? And, uh, and then just ask him. So I have a reconciliation method, you have a reconciliation method. But my reconciliation method harmonizes well with the fall of angels, the, the tail of the dragon that uh, sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven. And the fall of angels that I believe Hebrews 2, 1, uh, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 is talking about. The word spoken by angels. The word spoken by angels. You can translate it through angels. You can translate it by angels. There'll be some very angry people who will tell you you can't translate that by. You have to translate that through. But I can find uh, 30 or more uses where I can translate dia plus the genitive as by. And I have no problem with it. The, the word spoken by angels proved unalterable. Proved fixed. A word that was given that locked them into their fallen estate. Every angel that fell, fell of their own volition. All right, and so let me get past some things here we dealt with last week. There's more P's we talked about. Much closer, pay attention, don't drift away. Those are all P's in the Greek. Pay, pay close attention and do not drift away. It's that tandem imperative uh, using Navy language, using uh, nautical terms to, uh, to tie to a, to a pier. If you're going to lash a ship uh, securely to the pier, then the verb there is the verb we have for pay close attention as you're lashed secure to something. And then don't drift is another uh, term that could be used of casting out an anchor and fixing an anchor on the seabed. So now you're lashed to the pier and your anchor is anchored. And so now doubly you are held close and not drifting. Interesting terms there. We'll go past that.
All right, and holding fast to what we've heard in uh, the chapter 1 material. All right. Now, as we're looking at the word spoken through angels, we're talking about, what is the word spoken through angels? It is the word angels gave when they declared their defiance of the Lord God. It is the moment of their angelic fall. Satan's word began in his heart, but when spoken aloud, it proved steadfast, unalterable. And this is what we do when we study Isaiah 14 and the five I wills. It starts in the heart. You said in your heart, I will, I will, I will. Okay? But then it becomes verbalized. Ezekiel 28 talks about how he corrupted his wisdom by reason of his splendor and how he perverted others. He brought others under his rebellion. And when they speak that word of defiance, when they utter aloud their defiance of the Lord God, there's no turning back. It proved unalterable. Again, Hebrews 2.2, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Every angel that rebelled will eternally face the consequences of that rebellion. And there's no coming back. Satan can't get saved tomorrow. Just like the elect angels, Michael, Gabriel, they can't lose their salvation. They're locked in. They gave a word of allegiance. All right. One third of all angels were swept away by the dragon's tail. Revelation 12 and verse 4. But understand this, the angelic fall was not like humanity's fall. It was not a corporate fall of all angels. Each individual fallen angel made their own individual choice. Again, the word spoken by angels proved unalterable. That's what's different from angels and humans. You and I are fallen creatures in Adam. Adam fell and all of humanity in Adam was condemned in Adam. Not true for the angels. When one man sinned, we all sinned. Okay? This is the theology of Romans that proves this. When one man sinned, we all sinned. Not so for the angels. Each angel made their choice and each angel then fell. They had a Deuteronomy 30 moment choose you this day, right? Or Joshua 24, choose you this day whom you will serve. And one third of the angels chose to follow Satan's rebellion. And they're facing the consequences for that. There's no coming back. And in part, these big picture ideas are huge for us because God is demonstrating the blessings of fallen creatures accepting a grace redemption in contrast to glorified beings that are choosing a rebellion. That becomes important. Each fallen angel was individually guilty and individually justly recompensed in contrast to humanity being corporately guilty and afforded a grace provision for corporate redemption. So if you want to know all the theology here, I would recommend Romans 5. And we've got notes on Romans 5 when we taught the Romans class. Romans chapter 5, understand there's no unbeliever in hell today because of anything he did during his earthly life. He's in hell because he rejected the gospel, did not receive eternal life in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.12, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
When Adam sinned, you sinned. Okay? Something else I should have shown you back when we were in Genesis. The woman ate the fruit and her eyes weren't opened. It wasn't until the man ate the fruit that the eyes of both of them were open. Okay? Because guess what? Eve is in Adam just like you and I are in Adam. She came, where'd she come from? In Adam, literally. Okay? You and I come from Adam genetically. She too. Okay? Out of his rib. And so we all became sinners. Verse 15, verse 16, verse 17. All of these verses talking about through the one man, transgression, the many became sinners. The many became sinners. That's why uh, last week I made the comment, by grace you were condemned in Adam. You were born an unbeliever and thank God for that. Because it's not by works of unrighteousness which you have done that made you a fallen creature. Okay? Just like it's not by works of righteousness that can save you. But by grace you have been saved through faith. That becomes important as well. All right. And so uh, every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How shall we escape when we are provided not what we've earned or deserved? We are offered grace. How shall we escape? Here's the angels getting what they deserve, and here's us being afforded what we don't deserve, being afforded the grace of God to redeem us. We must pay much closer attention. We cannot drift away from it. We must respond in the grace that we have been given. All right, a fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the eternal abode for what is earned and deserved, okay? Also, humanity is assigned that fire upon rejection of salvation by grace. Isn't that interesting? When, when Jesus in Matthew 24 says, depart, in, or Matthew 25, yeah, Matthew 25, 41. When Jesus tells those goats on his left, he says, depart and enter into that fire that's been prepared, not for you, but for the devil and his angels. Why is that? And yet to the sheep on his right, he says, enter into the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Wow. You talk about a contrast between angelity and humanity. So, humanity ought to observe such eternal consequences and not neglect the grace-redemption way of life. Humanity ought to observe such an eternal consequence and not neglect the grace-redemption way of life. A redeemed people ought to walk in a manner worthy of God and pleasing to Him. Because we are a redeemed people, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be given the scriptures. We don't deserve to have gifts, ministries, and effects. We don't deserve anything. But by the grace of God, we are what we are. By the grace of God, we do what we do. And as a redeemed people, we ought to walk in a manner worthy of God and pleasing to Him. Colossians 1, verses 10 through 12. All right, so that effectively then uh, repeats what we taught last week. And I hope we're clear and I hope we're good on this that we have a contrast here. There is a flawed approach to Hebrews, I think, that does great damage to this sense that misses the whole point here in contrasting angelity and humanity because it looks ahead to chapter 3 and it looks ahead to chapter 7 and it looks ahead to chapter 10 
and it brings later developments and it brings them back too early and it injects them prior to the point that they are appropriately introduced. In chapter 3 we are introduced to Moses. We're introduced to the law. We're introduced to Israel. And there will be contrast between Israel and the church. But that contrast is not as early as chapter 2 where all too many people put it in there. Okay? And this is, uh, I think this is a good a good case to be made on this. All right. So if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What will the consequences be when we live in defiance of the grace of God? How does God treat a, a redeemed creature who lives in defiance of that redemption? All right, and we don't have to ask. Our, I mean, we can't ask ourselves rhetorically, but we have the scriptures to illustrate that. That's the whole point of the Exodus. That's the whole point of the wilderness wanderings. Chronicle First uh, uh, Corinthians tells us: learn from the example of the Exodus. Don't follow their bad example. Okay, because what happened in the Exodus? You have a redeemed people. Moses led them out of Egypt. The waters parted. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They get to the other side. The waters come crashing down. All of Pharaoh and his armies, all of that's destroyed. They're free. All they have to do now is walk in faith and go claim the glory that is to be given to them, is promised to them in the land flowing with milk and honey. Why did it take so long? (laughs) Forty years later, Why did it take so long? Because a redeemed people failed to walk as a redeemed people. They failed to walk in faith. With most of them, God was not well pleased. And they perished in the wilderness. All right? And so that's what we have to learn. And that's uh, that's vital that we learn that. And the contrast between law and grace, the contrast between Israel and the church, the contrast is, is there and it's very easy to make. But it's bigger than Israel and the church. It actually goes back to the angels. A redeemed people ought to walk in a manner worthy of the God who redeemed them. Worthy of the grace that saved them. And we want to be clear on that as well. Okay? So, the... Um, Every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Whereas you and I, do we receive a just penalty? You and I, what about our transgressions? What about our disobedience? No, Jesus Christ received the just penalty. He took our place. It was all applied to Him. I'm not getting the consequences of my sin. Jesus accepted the consequences of my sin. I'm saved by grace through faith. So how am I going to escape if I live in defiance of that grace that saved me? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The first century of the church is absolutely without excuse even as the Exodus generation is without excuse. They saw the signs and wonders for 40 years. 
They saw manna every morning. They saw the Red Sea. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They saw the ten plagues in Egypt. They saw the fire on Mount Sinai. They saw the signs and wonders for 40 years. Their shoes never wore out. Can you imagine? I mean, the same pair of shoes for 40 years walking in the desert. (laughs) Wow. Okay. And uh, imagine the sovereignty of God, the grace provision, the supply, everything that was necessary. And they grumble and they resist and they rebel and they complain. They don't like the manna. They want meat. All these other rebellions. Mara and the water was bitter and all these other testings. They tested him ten times in the wilderness. No, a redeemed people ought to walk in a manner worthy of God and pleasing to him. And all those signs and all those ways that he showed himself in the first century was the same way. The apostles were given signs and wonders. The prophets, the church prophets were given signs and wonders. Paul told the Corinthians, the the marks of a true apostle were accomplished among you. You know, Eutychus falls out a window dead and Paul brings him back to life. You know, it should be very clear that the poisonous snake bites him. He says, oh, it's okay. And he keeps on teaching Bible class. Other things are happening. Miracles throughout the first century at the hands of the apostles and the prophets because Scripture is being written The New Testament canon is being written. And the message of salvation by grace through faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, everything that we must pay much closer attention to has been given. We should not drift. We should not drift. All right. Now, let me just take a a few moments. Um, There's some concepts here. I spent a couple weeks, or a day, a couple weeks ago, reading 120 different commentaries on Hebrews 2.2. And I found 110 of them um, taught this verse differently. Okay? They all taught that the word spoken through angels was when Moses received Mosaic Law on Mount Sinai. Okay? And it's unfortunate that it's become such a common view as I mentioned, 110. Uh, Maybe five more, six more didn't define it at all in any way, just kind of dodged the question. McGee had a good uh, uh, commentary on it and some others, a couple others. But let me tell you something. Here's why the word spoken through angels cannot be Mosaic law. It's being contrasted with a salvation. And uh, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And as a contrast... Are you truly telling me that Mosaic Law was an alternative salvation to what you and I have? Really? You want to say that? And most of these commentators would never dream of saying that. But that's what they say when they say the word spoken through angels was Mosaic Law. So now they have to explain to me how Mosaic Law is a salvation. Mosaic Law was never given as a salvation. But that's the case they try to make. If the word spoken through angels, they say, well, that was... And by the way, go back to Exodus. <laughs> There's no angels there. Yahweh was speaking to Moses face to face. And the only angels mentioned there are mentioned later in Deuteronomy in one obscure passage of Psalms that talk about, well, there was a thunder and there was a fire. Those were angels. And there was a boundary placed at the bottom of the mountain so that uh, animals and, and Jews didn't step on foot on the mountain. 
So angels were there, yeah, but they weren't speaking. And that's, a, that's the point that's made over and over again. And so when you read these 110 commentaries, uh, they, they, they will all say, first of all, that was when Moses gave the law. And then secondly, well, the Old Testament doesn't tell us that angels were there, but um, we can kind of twist Galatians to maybe say that, and we can kind of twist uh, Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 to kind of say that, even though they don't say that either. Okay? No, the word spoken through angels is not Mosaic law. And it's, it, like I say, it's anachronistic. When we get to chapter 3, then we have our introduction to Moses. That Moses was faithful as a servant, but Christ is faithful as a son. And we have uh, the contrast between Moses and Christ in chapter 3. We have the priesthood uh, that's then mentioned in chapters 4 and 5. We have the law that's contrasted with grace. We have what's old and obsolete, ready to disappear. All right, all of that comes later in Hebrews. We're going to get to all of that. It's just too early in chapter 2 to try to bring it back and force it where it doesn't belong. Okay, Um, Some of the commentaries that... uh, I recommend uh, Pastor R.B. Theme in his book, Angelic Conflict. It was written in 1971. We've got it in our library. I believe you can still order it from Baraka and they'll ship it to you. Still in print. But his book on the angelic conflict uh, spells out Hebrews 2.2 in exactly the same way that I'm teaching it to you here this morning. That the word spoken through angels was the moment of their fall or the moment of their non-fall. When Gabriel and Michael gave the word that they were going to stay loyal to Yahweh Elohim. All right. Um, one other commentary by uh, Andrew Knowles. I'm hoping to get to know him better um, in uh, the Bible Guide. If you have that, I found this in my Logos Bible software library called the Bible Guide, written in uh, 2001. And Andrew Knowles specifies that the context for this chapter, like the context for chapter 1, puts it pre-humanity, puts it in the fall of angels. If the angels fell and were judged for it, how can we neglect our so great salvation? And so he made that comment. I was thrilled. I was thrilled to come across him. I don't know that he got it from theme or where he got it from or if he got it from his own study. Even uh, I've been in email touch with him now. He's still alive and uh, able to track him down, and, and um, that was kind of fun. <laughs> he's retired now, he's an older man, he's no longer the uh, theology, he was a, an Anglican uh, priest, an Anglican um, uh, Bible teacher, the canon of theology for his uh, cathedral in, uh, oh I'm forgetting the name of the town now, in England. So he is the canton of theology for this uh, cathedral, and uh, just an interesting fellow. And we, we're in email contact now, and I hope to, hope to learn more. I'm trying to get some of his sources, if he can give up some of the research that he did on this, and uh, come up with other authors that hold to the fall of the angel's view. John Bunyan, an exposition on the first 10 chapters of Genesis. In fact, John Bunyan, and here's where it helps again to have some software to help find some of these things, because uh, you find a reference to Hebrews 2.2, not in a commentary on Hebrews, but in a commentary on Genesis. And John Bunyan wrote an exposition of the first 10 chapters of Genesis, and he made a point to uh, the fall of angels and to that fallen serpent from Genesis 3, and why Yahweh is rebuking that serpent, and why there is no hope of redemption for Satan or any of the fallen angels. 
because the word they gave was an eternal word with eternal consequences, that there is no coming back. And so uh, when John Bunyan was giving a discourse on Genesis 3.14, he cited Hebrews 2.2 and referenced the fall of angels in a similar manner to how I'm defending it here this morning. All right. And beyond all that anyway, when you prove your case, what are you really trying to say? Maybe for the sake of argument, okay, I'll buy your argument. I'll go along with you. You're telling me this is Mosaic law? Then what does that mean? Where do we go from there? Because the the point of superiority versus inferiority, okay, the greater, greater than the lesser, are we really trying to say that law is inferior to grace because what? Because angels gave it? And Jesus gave us the gospel? Is that what we're trying to say? That would be a stupid thing to say, especially since we can disprove it. <laughs> okay? and, and especially since the gospel wasn't invented when Jesus gave it. We've always had the same gospel. But for the sake of argument, I'll say, okay, I'll go there with you. And yet, I don't think you can. Mosaic law is not inferior to the gospel of grace because angels gave the law, but Jesus gave us the gospel. Is that really what we're saying? If we're going to hold to that and say, okay, the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord? Ah, okay. And so that's where they're trying to put the emphasis saying, well, it was spoken by the Lord, okay? And really what they're trying to do is they're trying to restate uh, what, how the book began, right? God, after He spoke long ago through the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. Now that was perfectly valid at the beginning of Hebrews. I loved it there at the beginning of Hebrews. But we can't restate it or re-inject it here, and it misses the point to re-inject it or to restate it here. The whole point is not to say that the law is bad because angels gave it and the the grace gospel is good because Jesus gave it. Isn't that dumb? Okay. Law has always been inferior. It's always been obsolete. It's always been ready to disappear. The first day it was given, it was never intended to be eternal. And it was never a gospel for salvation. Never a gospel for salvation. There is not a single Jewish family that ever pointed to the law and told little Johnny or little, uh, I need a Hebrew little kid name, Um, right? Told little Jacob, Yaakov, said, you've got to follow the law to get eternal life. No. Messiah is coming. Believe in Messiah. That's the gospel. It's always been the gospel. Believing in the Messiah has always been the gospel. So I think this is, uh, this is clear because obviously, honestly, angels didn't give the law. Jesus gave the law. It was the angel of the Lord. It was God himself, God the Son. It was Yahweh who gave the law. If angels were on hand, they were on guard duty at the bottom of the mountain, and I accept that. They ordained the law by their witness and that's what Galatians speak to, the law is ordained by angels. That's what Stephen's message stated in Acts chapter 7, the law as ordained by angels. 
but not spoken by angels, not spoken through angels. It was spoken through Yahweh himself face to face with Moses. And the Yahweh who gave the law is the same Yahweh, is the same God, who's the same Jesus that came and died on the cross in the Gospels. So it's the same God. Yahweh is Jesus. Are we clear on that? <laughs> we ought to be. All right. And that's a whole other message right there. I knew a lady, a Jewish lady, that loved Jesus, really loved Jesus, because she married a Methodist guy. She grew up Jewish, but she married a Methodist, and she, she just loves Jesus. And the New Testament, all those stories, she really, really loves Jesus. And, but she was afraid because of her childhood and her Old Testament background. She said, Pastor Bob, I'm, I'm concerned because Yahweh doesn't tolerate the worship of other gods. Yahweh says, you shall have no other god before me. And, and so she, she was really struggling with her Jewish background in Yahweh and her Methodist husband in Jesus. And boy, what a happy day when I was able to show her that, hey, relax. Yahweh is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, and never put two and two together. She saw four for the first time, and boom, there it was. So Yahweh's not mad at her for loving Jesus. Okay? It's a good thing. It's the same Yahweh, because it wasn't angels that gave the law in the first place. And it wasn't Jesus that gave us the gospel. The gospel's been around longer than the baby in the manger, longer than the first advent incarnation, longer than the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ. There's been a gospel preached since uh, God told Adam and Eve that the fig leaves weren't going to cut it. Okay? From that very first day, God killed an animal and clothed them with the dead animal skin. God taught them that blood must be shed. God, God taught them the doctrine of substitutionary atonement taught them the, necess- the necessity of the shedding of blood, taught them that it was not anything they could do but what God must do on their behalf. And that doctrine has been the gospel since day one. And so there aren't two salvations anyway. The seed of the woman gospel provided for the same salvation as the gospel we preach today. Okay? That seed of the woman gospel. Right from Genesis 3, right from when they were kicked out of the garden, he told them that your seed and her seed, that he will crush you, uh, crush you on the heel and you will crush him on the head. And there's that promise. God's speaking to the serpent there. But God promised the redemption of humanity through the seed of the woman. And they didn't know about a virgin. They didn't know about Bethlehem. They didn't know about uh, his name would be Jesus. They didn't know. There's a lot of things they didn't know about. They didn't know about the son of David because they didn't know David. They, there was a lot they didn't know about. You and I have the most information that's ever been given to any evangelist to ever give a gospel. But we have the same gospel they preached. Believing in Messiah. Believing in Christ. Trusting God at His Word for eternal life. So, we want to be clear on this as well. Because this is, this is the difference between the message and the object of faith. Okay? And I'm glad we had time to get to this. I think this is uh, the last thing I wanted to get to today, that we have time. Don't confuse the gospel with the object of faith. The object of faith is Jesus Christ, always has been, always will be. Even, 
before the cross. He was still the object of faith, just with the understanding of what had been revealed at that time. Much more limited, much more, they didn't know all the things we know, but they still believed in Christ for eternal life. That's always been the case. And I think we're dealing with, we've had it in the last 10 years, sadly. The last, uh, going back to 2004, I think, whenever um, Zane Hodges wrote an article, they got a lot of people upset. And those people weren't reading what he was saying and they just reacted instead of responding. And there was a huge scandal, maybe you're familiar with this huge scandal about the crossless gospel. And it's, it's sad what pastors and churches have done with that. Okay? And what Hodges was trying to do, and what he did do in two beautiful papers, was show you the difference between the message and the object of faith. The information we convey versus the object of faith. And if you can keep those things distinct, you'll be fine. And you'll be an effective evangelist. The, the article is written, How to Lead People to Christ. Okay? And that's the point of what he was getting across. And what information is necessary. And if a person knows something, can they still believe? And if they don't know something, does that keep them from believing? And what is the... What is the uh, is there something that has to be given in every gospel message? Because if you don't, then the knowledge is insufficient so as to persuade. Okay? And if it's insufficient so as to persuade, well then you need to give more information to persuade. But the whole point being, when an unbeliever is persuaded that he needs to be saved, <laughs> and he's persuaded that Christ is the Savior, and he's persuaded that believing in Christ is the, the provision for eternal life, then that's the information that we have to get across. And maybe we should just stop there once they get it. <laughs> okay? And once they're persuaded, just close your mouth. Because the persuasion is the patho that leads to the believing, which is the pastuo. That tandem of patho and pastuo we've studied before as well. And it's, uh, it, to me... It's useful. And I want to close with this. And of course, we got a potluck and there's things. But to me, um, it, it's useful because it keeps things simple. We, don't, we, uh, we recognize that there's a lot more information. Even when somebody gets saved, let's say you lead somebody to Christ tomorrow. Okay? I hope you do. But you lead somebody to Christ tomorrow, and everything you told them up to that point, and they get saved. Hallelujah. Praise God. But you know what? You could have told them more there's stuff you didn't tell them and that's fine they're going to learn it after they're saved they're going to grow in the things of the lord once they have the the living human spirit once they have the permanent dwelling of the holy spirit they're going to learn a ton of things they didn't know before they got saved that's great we want to we want to uh, not we want to be more simple in what we're preaching especially if we're giving the gospel to children and it is the childhood faith, the, the, the faith as simple as a child. How complicated do you want to make it? All right? And that's what Hodges was saying, and that's what they rejected. That's what they got all mad about. All right? A, a different things. Do you have to know about Jesus? Do you have to know? Did, do you know that his mother was a virgin? Did you know that? Did you know that before you got saved? And if you, if you, uh, if you didn't know that before you got saved, could you, would that have kept you from believing in Christ? Could have, did you know he was born in Bethlehem? Did you know that before you got saved? Or did you learn that after you were saved? And if you didn't know it, did it 
Could that keep you from believing in Christ? You know he was a literal father and son, literal father and son descendant from David. Did you know that before you got saved? See? The big one, and I'm guilty of this, I didn't know that he was God. I did not understand the deity. I did not understand the hypostatic union. Okay? I just knew that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That he took my place. That God judged Jesus so that I could have eternal life. That's what what I was told. And I believed in Jesus. And I became a believer in September of 1973. And and, uh, it was later in Sunday school, months later in Sunday school. And the teacher was talking about hypostatic union and the God-man and how God the Son became a man. And so I, I get the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the doctrine of Trinity, and then here's Jesus. And wait a minute, one member of Trinity, God the Son, is the one that became Jesus, that became a man. God became a man. I didn't understand that at first. And I went home and told my mother, my, my, my mother, she wanted to know, well, what did you learn in Sunday school? And I told her, it was the dumbest thing in the world. My teacher said this crazy thing, God became a man. She said, Jesus was God. And my mother said, that's right. Your teacher's not dumb. (laughs) I didn't tell you that. I told you that. Jesus is God. Well, you mean Jesus, when he died on the cross, that he was God? God and man. And so I didn't know about the deity of Christ before I got saved. All right? Do you have to know about the deity of Christ in order to get saved? To believe in Christ? I don't think so. I had a PhD uh, uh, professor and speaker at a conference told me I was wrong. I wasn't saved when I thought I was saved. That I wasn't a believer yet because I didn't under, you can't be saved if you don't know the deity of Christ. And without knowing that it's the God-man who took your place, then it's a, it's a flawed gospel. You know what? There's a lot of flawed gospels out there, but there is a Savior that when you believe in the perfect Savior, you have eternal life. And that is so true. All right. So um, if the angels fell and got what they deserved, how will we escape if we've been saved in a way that we don't deserve? How will we escape? How can we live a life that neglects the grace that saves us? How dare we? How dare we? We need to pay much closer attention. We need to not drift. We need to glorify our Savior in all that we do. That's uh, the message here in this prologue from Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding to see some some deep things, some big picture items. Father, uh, some of these concepts are just powerful and in many beautiful ways and yet the gospel is so simple trust in christ to receive eternal life father i just thank you again for that faithfulness it's fun to be saved it's great to be saved that saturday morning in september of 1973 is indeed a happy day we sing oh happy day father each one of us just thankful for the grace of our salvation Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.